The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. This will be available as a podcast on all your favorite platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, under that Lead Lag Live banner, as well as on YouTube. With all that said, my name is Michael Gayad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Lawrence uh, McDonald, who I'm sure many of you have seen over the years, has some great research as well. I'm excited for this conversation. Lawrence, for those who are not familiar with your background, introduce yourself. Who are you? Has you got involved in markets? And what are you doing with some of your work? Thanks, Michael. And uh, I'm, I'm really impressed with the way you've uh, grown this platform. And uh, I like the leadership and, and thanks for the leadership. I, I've got my first break. We, we started ConvertBond.com in the 90s and we sold it to Morgan Stanley in October of, of 99. So very fortunate timing there. And then I, be, I became, after that, I traded convertible bonds and distressed bonds at Lehman Brothers. I ran our distress, one of our large distressed businesses as a trader. And then as Lehman was heading toward the iceberg, uh, I, I partnered up with Patrick Robinson, who had written Lone Survivor with the Navy SEAL Marcus Luttrell, became a number one New York Times bestseller and a movie with Mark Wahlberg. So I approached Patrick in the summer of 2008 about doing a Lehman book. And uh, at a dinner party on Cape Cod around the 4th of July, he he literally laughed in my face and said he was working on Shimon Perez's memoirs and he'd be busy until 2010. And at the dinner table, I looked at everybody around the table and I said, if, if this bank goes down, it's going to be bigger than Enron, WorldCom, Adelphia, and General Motors combined. And, you know, he, sit, he sat there for a couple of minutes, said a Shivas Regal on the rocks, he put it down and he said, listen, if she goes down by the stroke of midnight, December 31st, 2008, you have a deal. And there are books now in 12 languages. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's voted by the CFA Institute as one of the top finance books of all time. So that's you know kind of where I'm. And now we, uh, we run an institutional business with hedge funds, mutual funds, and pension funds, a live conversation every day on Bloomberg. So 80% of our revenue is from institutions, about 20% from higher net worth family offices. And we provide the bear traps report and the turning uh, turning point. All right, so I want to go back for a moment to you taught you you doing the distressed bond side of Lehman Brothers which I'm sure was fun to do at that time. I've made this point all year that one of the most bizarre dynamics we've never really seen is this idea that we got to a point where government bonds were acting like the distressed bond. 
right? And you saw that with gilts in particular. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how uh, the volatility in the government bond market side has has played out if you believe it's justified or if it's an overreaction against credit risk, which still hasn't blown out. Yeah, well, our next book is really we just inked the deal with Penguin, and, and it's, it's about the Lehman crisis was, okay, the banks were going down and the sovereigns bailed it out, right? So those, you took financial risk from bank balance sheets, and essentially you put it on the sovereigns and then uh, sovereign governments. And then COVID, we took uh, lockdown risk, which, you know, economic meltdown, lockdown risk. And we took all that debt and all those social you know, safety nets that came out of lockdowns, and uh, we put those on the sovereign balance sheet. And now we have a credit crisis around energy in, uh, in Europe and the, even all through the United States where families are being priced out the bottom 50%. If you just look at Capital One credit default swaps versus, say, American Express, fascinating divergence there. Very, very unusual divergence. And Capital One, remember, they really pitched themselves to the to the younger, uh, well, to the, to the little guy, you know, the bottom 50%. So I think at the end of the day, you've got a sovereign crisis that's probably in the fourth inning globally. Uh, in the But in, then in the United States, you have a crisis where the bottom 50% has been hit by inflation and just a, a runaway inflation that's that's really hurting families. And so the credit risk, if you just look at charge-offs at Capital One versus the other, some of the other credit card companies, so you're seeing a real big divergence there and kind of credit risk is kind of coming up to the system. It's not at Lehman levels yet, but it's the, the one thing about the high-yield bond market and the investment-grade market, the companies did an incredible job in 2020 and 21 of pushing out maturities, like because they were so it, it was so easy to issue bonds with the Fed doing uh, that much QE, and so they've really pushed out the, the corporate credit risk for at least another year. But it's 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 out there lurking to, for sure. Yeah, as you, as you say that, that makes me even think about the bifurcation that's probably already started in the housing market. I'm going to make the assumption that probably for a while. Any real transactions in housing would probably be cash deals that don't come from, obviously, those kind of bottom 50% to your point, because who the hell is going to want to buy a house when unemployment is set to rise and and mortgage rates are so much more elevated than before? And it seems to me that the end result of all this is more of the same, meaning more of a widening of the wealth gap. Yeah, it's um, the last summer I was on Nantucket, and it was it was insane. I mean, it was just, and you look at the comments from United Airlines over the last like couple of months. And and you just have a lot of well, Wall Street and financial people and any kind of executives are, are doing this kind of like they're spending more time in cities like Miami, like in other words, just traveling more and doing it's not only not only are we commuting you know further and like people are working less days in the office, but they're also have remote offices in better locations because COVID forced that. And and a lot of those habits, people don't want to give those up. So, the, so, so they're spending a ton of money on travel, and that's what's really kept up the economy over the last like couple of months. And you know, one fascinating thing that's happening is that if you think about Lehman, one of the things I talked about in my book is the Lehman shock, such a shock, and it, and it, it created corporate America. It was in a fast mode to reduce employment. And same thing with COVID. So if you think about recency bias, right, in, our, in all of our minds, we had the Lehman shock and COVID, you know, 14 years apart, but those are the two last shocks. And in both cases, 
you know, reduct what we call rifts, reduction in force. Rifts were very easy to execute. And so the employment situation relative to the market, relative to equities, was very fast transition into uh, weakness. Whereas now we're like a we're like in 2000 to 2003 situation where there's been a, a large wealth destruction. I think it's like 18 trillion of bonds, crypto, ARK stocks, FANGs. You know, it's, it's a big number in real estate. So you've got about an $18 trillion hit to the wealth. And that wealth effect is Greenspan mentioned in, from 2000 to 2001. Greenspan not just mentioned, he wrote at great length about the wealth, what's called the, the wealth wealth destruction impact on GDP, the wealth effect. And in from 2000 to 2003, it was about 3% reduction in GDP, but it was very slow. And there's, you know, companies, I think a lot of companies are, are laying off people, but they're doing it with severances. You get two, three, four months. And so the, that's why we're seeing this kind of magical employment market. You know, the job market's holding up pretty well relative to the recency bias of Lehman and COVID. And of course, one of the big drivers of the wealth effect is is housing, right? And I always focus on lumber because average home has 16,000 board feet of lumber. That's been pretty weak all year, made even new lows on Friday. And w- what's amazing to me about how this bear market could play out, I said many times, I don't think the bear market in stocks ends until the bear market in housing ends. If you were to use lumber as a proxy for for housing, which historically it's a pretty good one, you could fall another 50% in lumber prices to get to the bottom end of the historical range it's been at for decades. So it does seem like the reverse wealth effect is still going to keep going, but maybe be more centered this time outside of bonds, which, as you noted, is where the bulk of this year's losses have been. I want to focus on the, the word shocks for a moment, because I've made this point before, Lawrence, that inflation is more of a process. Disinflation or deflation is more of an event which is what a shock tends to be, right? Lehman was a deflationary shock. COVID was a deflationary shock for a a moment in time. Do you get the sense that we're headed for maybe another shock, another deflation shock, just as everybody's still worried about higher inflation? Definitely a consumption spending shock. Like the the savings, you know, that that large savings pool that's kept the economy up. By this time next year, you know, JP Morgan just put out a good report. But we're coming down about, 50% 50% in terms of that excess savings kind of cushion that's been supporting the economy. And so th- this time next year, it's coming down you know, quite violently. And uh, so, yeah, so we'll, we'll have, you know, I think the big picture for the, for the like, let's think of like how we're going to make money for the next year, right? So to me, when you look at the dollar and you look at consumption, you look at the U.S. economy and the Fed, the dollar always has like 50% of the trade and measuring what the dollar is going to do is is the Fed and, and obviously the U.S. consumer. And the other 50% is the planet Earth. And so the planet Earth, a year from today, is probably in a better spot with China. And that's been a, a dollar tailwind this year. And so because it's lockdown after lockdown. But a year from now, that's probably a little bit of a tailwind for the, other, the rest of the planet and commodities. And then you have Europe, the budget, which we'll get into the federal budget, is, is going to be Interest costs are going to explode over the next year, and uh, cost of living adjustments uh, at, at Social Security in terms of paying people with Social Security because of int- interest because of inflation. That's in about $100 billion. So there's not a lot of money for the Ukraine. Now, they can try to front-end load it in the budget at the end of the year, 
But the pressure on Zelensky is, is going to be spectacular to, to form some type of detente next year because it's just the cash burn is too great. You just can't burn 50, 60, 70 billion every single year. And so Europe's probably in a better spot. And then at the same time, the U.S. is probably in a – because like what, you, what we're talking about now is with this consumption, excess savings going to collapse over the next year, but close to a trillion dollars less. And so that all sets up for you know sl- slightly weaker – well, weaker U.S., probably substantially weaker, but better rest of the planet. If that happens, then your dollar is, for the first time, it's losing all of its tailwinds, and, and the rest of the planet's got more of the tailwinds, and therefore – and if the Fed has to has to ease next year, if you look at Fed, Fed funds, they're starting to price in rate cuts. So if they're easing and the rest of the world's improving, that's that gets you a much weaker dollar, and that's going to help keep inflation up. So I, I just don't see that Lehman deflationary bust though, that we had before. It's, I think like, there's more secular forces that will keep inflation up. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. I had this thought the other day that, you know, in the event that Russia, Ukraine, the war stops and some kind of deal is struck, that I'd, I'd make the argument that that could actually be seen as disinflationary or deflationary and maybe could be problematic for the Fed in the sense that any kind of hope that Russia stops means commodities come back, you know, full force or at least somewhat from Russia, that puts downward prices on commodities, takes out some of the cost push inflation on the uh, good side against a Fed that's that's been hiking rates with that dynamic in the background. If the Fed were to pivot when inflation is still high, it seems like that's going to be somewhat of an optical problem for them, from, just from an optics standpoint, right? Because they can't wait for inflation to go down 2% if there's you know broader disinflation and they have to start cutting to get ahead of it. Yeah, that's a gr- Michael, that's a great point on the Ukraine. I, th- I think there's got to be some massive truth to that in terms of, but to me, that's a three-year trade from like, okay, from the detente and how long it takes a resolution to, to actually get, you know, start to, to bring things down because there's just so much disruption every day, every week. But, you know, the, the other factor is the Bank of Japan where, we have clients, and like in the last month, I've had four big clients that have done these emergency flights into Japan. And uh, Jens Nordvig was the keynote speaker at our conference with our hedge fund conference in Panama. We had family offices and hedge funds about eight days ago. He's seeing the same thing where there's sneaky inflation in Japan. And so if you look at the planet Earth and, and all of the government bonds, right, and this real government bond yield stress, and you look at the Bank of Japan's doing yield curve control, the probability with Kuroda leaving in March, the probability of him kind of like, you think, think of your, if you're Kuroda and think of you're the Bank of Japan. You just watch the Fed embarrass themselves on the world stage by underestimating inflation, right? So if, you, if you're Kuroda and you've got, you've got to protect your legacy on the way out, the probability that they alter or eliminate yield curve control 
in the first quarter, which would be a real big impact for the dollar, I think is very high. I'm hearing that from more and more clients. So, so the, you know, that's that's you know, it's it's the like you said, it's the Ukraine war, and but it's also other factors like, and that's a you know real tailwind for a weaker dollar. Right. No, I, I think I think that that intuitively makes a lot of sense on that end. But it, the the thing that everybody, I think every policymaker is trying to control is ultimately volatility. And I've made this point before. I think people give too much credit to policymakers and their ability to contain gyrations. In many ways, they actually make the volatility higher uh, from the actions that they take. But when we think about just in general where we are, I, I, I looked at your most recent report and I love the analogy to 2011. I want to talk about how the debt ceiling drama, as you said uh, in that report, plays out. The There is a scenario, I think, that – and I've been saying this for a year, so admittedly I've been wrong for a while this – that S&P could come in and downgrade the credit quality of the U.S. government again. A lot of people will say, well, that's not going to happen because the last time they did that, S&P got sued by the government. I want to hear your take on the debt ceiling and what parallels, if any, there are to 2011. Well, thanks. And yeah, I'm going to bring this up because I, I spend a lot of time in Washington. Our, our partner is ACG Analytics since 2010, David Mester and his team. And we take the clients into Washington on a regular basis or work very closely with the ACG team. They advise uh, hedge funds on policy. And it's a great indicator because I can see a lot of funds, a lot of hedge funds, mutual funds, pension funds, spending some time with ACG on the subject. And that means that it's something that's coming down the pike that we all have to keep an eye on. Because when the Republicans took the House in 2010, 63 seats, it was a powerful moment because it empowered the Tea Party to try to inflict some pain on, on the Obama budgets. And so now we have a House with a Freedom Caucus, right? And whether you're Republican or Democrat, these are this is a strange group of people, right? They're, and they're very powerful now because there's only a five-seat majority. Five seat. So the GOP has the House by five seats, but the Freedom Freedom Caucus has 45 seats. So in other words, the Freedom Caucus, caucus is going to be the new Joe Manchin, like in the, in the sense that they have tremendous blocking power. They control the budget. And they're focused on like Tea Party type deficits, they're focused on interest, they're focused on inflation. And so and last time in 2011, you're right, the U.S. was downgraded. But you remember, the, the rating agencies are center left, right? They're, they're more centrist. They're not Republicans or Democrats. But if anything, they lean a little bit more left. They would love to embarrass the Republicans by threatening a downgrade. And so the bottom line is the probability of some type of showdown in May, June is, I think, 80%. And if you're one of these Freedom Caucus people, you're more, these are more altruistic. You know, they, it does seem crazy to put the credit rating of the United States at risk. But to them, they're looking at runaway inflation. They're looking at back-to-back -back $3 trillion deficits in 2020 and 21. And they're, they're going to make a stand here. And the last point is, is the Fed. So the, the Fed keeps rates up here, Michael. For this, this is one of the dirty little secrets that's out there, like th that nobody's really mentioning. And next year, it's going to get tons of attention. If the Fed just keeps rates up here for twelve months, and you get Bill Dudley and all these guys, you know, saying, "Oh, let's move Fed, Fed funds to six percent," this is the biggest crock of BS I've heard, I've seen. Because if anybody just does math, if you keep Fed funds here for a year, 
interest as a percentage of the budget. You think of non-discretionary spending and discretionary spending. Interest as a percentage of the budget goes from like 8% to 11, maybe close to 12. So then it, it wipes out a ton of of spending and then it, it puts tremendous pressure on the budget for next year. So it's like, so not only are we going to have the debt ceiling, but we also have this interest as a percentage in the budget explosion. I just put in the nest. So I'm with you on that. I, I put that out late September. The Fed is going to need to do QE just to pay for the interest expense from higher rates on government debt. I mean, that's why this is so, so bizarre of an environment. And all that probably results in uh, presumably a deeper and deeper inversion in the yield curve. Yeah, so the, exactly. So the yield curve typically would, would steepen in a, as you come out of recession. And we're, you know, we're really flat. I mean, the twos, tens are at the, at the flattest since, since Jimmy Carter. So you're, you're really flat. When you go from one party in control, okay, to two-party control, in that first three to four months, typically, typically you get a bond rally because of the austerity that comes in because one, of the Congress. So think if you go from one-party control of the House and Senate to two-party control, the last like 70 years, you always get like a 50 to even 100 basis point rally in the long end because – and especially if that's around in a recessionary time because you go from one party that's really kind of has control of the purse to two-party – and that kind of pressure and austerity gives bonds a rally, especially in a recessionary period. Now, so you probably get a rally, I think, the first, the next three, four months. But then you get the Fed that's easing late next year. You get their economies coming out of recession. You get the global economy is improving. And therefore, you get probably that's where the curve really starts to steepen. And so I think it's like two trades. One is the the first trade is... You get, you get double barrel tailwinds around going into recession, bullish bonds. You go in from one party control to two party control, the House and Senate, that brings a lot of buyers into bonds. But then as we come out of this thing next, late next year, you get a weaker dollar and then the, dollar, you know, the long end is higher and the front end is – so your curve starts to steepen a lot next year by this time next year. Yeah, I mean I can definitely see that playing out that way. And, and you're right. I mean austerity is the best way to ha- handle inflation, right? But it's also – you can argue in a lot of ways politi- politically not really palatable. I mean, we're seeing that, right? I mean, a lot of the a lot of government officials have been basically giving out checks to pay for inflation. But you, so it doesn't sound to me like you think that the Freedom Caucus is going to be that they are going to try to do everything possible to reverse some of the things that we've seen this year. Oh yeah, yeah, it's going to be a big showdown. They're going to try to keep the budget as you know. They're going to just first of all, you've got like I said, you got interest on reserves of so. After Lehman, we, we, we now have to pay the bank. So if, once again, if you, keep, if you keep the Fed funds rate up here for too long, you not only have the $100 billion of interest that has to go to Social Security, but additional, you've got the interest on the debt, and then you have another $200 billion of interest on reserves that has to go to the banks. So it, all in all, it adds up to like a 500, potentially a $500 billion hit. And so if you're in the Freedom Party, the Freedom Caucus and the Republicans, and all these bills start coming like when Powell's on this Humphrey Hawkins next summer, this is going to be like a massive showdown because people are going to, for the last like 10 years on average, the, the Fed's been sending Congress every year, 90 billion, 100 billion, 200 billion, you know, but now there's this massive reversal and uh, where the, the Fed is, has this deficit with, within, because they're keeping the Fed's funds rate so high. 
let's talk about the idea of, of normalization, getting back to kind of a 2% annualized number. Nobody seems to be of the mindset that that's going to happen anytime soon. And I saw in your report, you know, sort of the argument that you need much higher unemployment than people probably think to get to that level. How much of getting back to 2% is a function of security measures from the government versus the Fed forcing unemployment? Well, you know, there was a Wall Street Journal poll two, three weeks ago, and only 7% of the economists polled thought that Fed funds would be above 4% next year. So I think there's two things going on. I think you're right. I think everybody thinks inflation is certain to come down, but there's a, there's a large group of people that does think it's like people think it's going to, not to two, but everybody thinks it's going to be below four, like it's, 73% of the survey. So only, only 7% thought that we would have inflation above four this time next year. So I think that the power of labor, I mean, Marty Walsh is the labor secretary, right? I mean, this is, you couldn't ask for a more important and powerful labor secretary to deal with this rail crisis, right? Because it's a Democrat. He's, you know, has tremendous relationships with the unions. He's in the Biden administration. They can't get a deal done. And if you look around the country, Starbucks, the power of labor, what happens with inflation is it gets under the sheet seat cushions. You know, it, it gets into the cracks in the walls. In other words, when inflation hangs out above, once it goes above six and stays there for a couple of quarters, it gives people like labor unions and these leadership. First of all, they have more people coming into the unions because more and more people are are really annoyed with inflation and they want to they want to they need bargaining power because of inflation so the labor the ranks of labor goes up just a lot of the polls show that union membership and union popularity is as popular as the 60s so you have all this like wage pressure that but it's because of inflation and once it gets in there this rail strike is like a perfect it's happening like in multiple places all around the country and that's what creates the sticky inflation and that so got that i had andrea stefan's invited i went to brazil did a speech there with stonex two months ago and andrea stefan's invited me in uh, his office great guy billionaire he's ceo of btg pactual and i said um i said andre what does btg stand for he said better better than goldman <laughs> better than goldman and uh we had some laughs but he was a fan he read my book and he's like listen larry this isn't just reshoring. He said 30% of the entire planet is going to have a north-south supply chain of the company. It's going to have a north-south supply chain that will encompass. This is why the peso is so strong in Mexico, right? You've got a peso that is really strong in Mexico for the first time. Just look, just look at massive breakout. And so that is, you've got Canada, U.S., Mexico, and then you have, obviously, Brazil. So obviously, he's talking his book. But at the end of the day, this whole global supply chain has to be backed up to some extent, 20, 30 percent of it into this hemisphere. And so all of these things create, you know, power of labor, new supply chain, all of these things create like some much more sustainable inflation. But that probably also requires another debt binge, right? I mean, because you're going to need infrastructure and we know infrastructure has been, you know, horrible and there needs to be a lot of investment in a lot of other places of the, of the globe. So. It seems to me that that's a bit of a stopping point, right? Which means you need to have rates lower to get the the French shoring and onshoring to really accelerate. Yes, that's the wild card. Is exactly how much debt pays for 
Like, oh yeah, well, we need this massive infrastructure build globally. You know, there is no rail system in Brazil. You know, so they, that country needs a rail system. And so, and there's most of Latin America doesn't have a rail system. So it, yeah, that, that, that is a, a wild card that, that people haven't really calculated. Let me uh, reset the room for the remaining half an hour here. Everybody, please make sure you follow Lawrence McDonald. And again, if any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. This will be a podcast under that lead lag live banner. Uh, let's go for a question. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Okay, you think back the last two months, we got this LDI situation. When you suppress the cost of capital for longer and longer and longer periods of time, there's an evil process that works in the markets. And this LDI situation is the perfect example because when central banks suppress the cost of capital, and this is the pension funds that you know almost essentially blew up, the pension system of the United Kingdom was blowing up. And now we have a similar situation with commercial real estate in the United States and Black, Blackstone this week. Look at Blackstone equity. I mean, this is, they're putting up the gates, what we call gates, in, in terms of their large commercial real estate risk. So people want their money out. They're, if they're gating, that tells me that whenever you see gates, and we saw these in 2008, that it's not just one cockroach, right? And so what I don't know is, you know, how big is the commercial real estate risk when you suppress the cost of capital for 10 years, you enable under the surface all these jerks to create all these kind of derivative products that simply will, you know, try to game the, game the low interest rate system. And when, because the cost of capital is kept low for so long, that works for a long, long time. It's extremely profitable. And then each year, more and more of these games are played across not just LDI, but all kinds of different areas like commercial risk in the United States. So what I really don't know is how big this problem is. Well, one, one thing that I, I give some pushback. So I look at M&T Bank. We had some clients that were short that. that a lot of these regional banks were at all-time highs like even like within the last two months, it was really weird, and it's you know you can see why in some ways because the higher yields in the like that the yield curve is is so elevated across two obviously one year treasuries twos tens the whole curve is essentially at one point it was like four percent and for many many years banks haven't had that kind of beautiful curve to make money off of because when when rates are suppressed extremely low levels, it's, it's, it's bad for banks. There's a whole bunch of complex reasons behind that. So this regime change in yields is somewhat bullish for banks. And so that's why it was really weird, like four weeks ago, five weeks ago, we had you know, many equities at multi-year, like, like JP Morgan was at this. We, we put up a chart, JP Morgan versus M&T Bank. It was incredible. So it was the global banks, like the, the, the big banks that were exposed to the planet and the problems in Europe, and you know, all these kind of global problems. 
were suffering, but the, commu- the regional banks in the United States were at all-time highs. And when M&T reported, they alluded to some commercial real estate risks. So, so it looks like, to me, it looks like these regional banks have had this like flight to quality because the global banks were exposed to Europe, exposed to China. And so then, so if you have, if you have to own financials, which some funds, you know, have to keep ownership of financials, right? So there was this massive crowding into some of the regional banks. And uh, to me, the economic risk hasn't really been factored into to, you know, to some of the regional banks. I love that point you mentioned, Lawrence, which I think is spot on. It's like, you know, you have a decade of low rates, an age of moderation, sort of the classic argument of, you know, a little bit of a Minsky moment, right? A buildup of hidden risks using a combination of Minsky and, and Nassim uh, Taleb in that way of thinking. And we have seen the biggest rise in rates in history. Now, for the most part, stocks have been, you know, they've been in a bear market. Uh, arguably since February of last year, but uh, you haven't, as everyone's correctly noted, had the flush. Now, I've made that point before that there was a flush in bonds, which is part of the whole reason for the initial melt-up thesis on my end, which people can debate with me from here tomorrow, but it was a fairly sizable move since I said that October 2nd. But now, you know, speaking about that point about the regionals and banks, it is curious to me, right? Because if you're going to have a recession, you'd expect financials to be among the worst performers. At least that's typically the case historically. It sounds to me like you need to have such a deep inversion in the yield curve that it's not profitable for the banks to lend to really stop the flow of credit. Yeah, that, exactly. That that deep, like if this, what we haven't seen in so many, since such a long period of time is where if you had this deep inversion stay here for long periods of time, and that's where like we haven't just have like tw- every, every time the curve has been this inverted the last like 20, 30 years, it just hasn't been able to stay there very long because the Fed comes in and they usually cut aggressively. That's what we were talking about before. People don't understand. Like I haven't been calling for like a 2018 pivot, right? So I've been publicly around a pivot, but in the old days, a pivot used to be, okay, 2018, they were promising five rate hikes in 2019. And they essentially just, they ended up cutting rates, right? In 2019. That's a traditional pivot. What's happening now is they just did four consecutive 75 basis point hikes, four. And then they were promising like essentially another 150 bips of hikes and, and all, like you said, one trillion of QT in 12 months. The, when you promise that much accommodation withdrawal and you promise that so aggressively and you go out and you, you, know, you leak it to the journal and you leak it to all these different Goldman Sachs and everybody starts to believe it, the slightest walk back from that is a powerful pivot. And that's what's happening now. But it's not like a pivot that we've seen in the past. You know, it's just that you're going from such aggressive, aggressive accommodation withdrawal to, you know, just a much slower pace. And I, I keep going back to that point, and I'll, I'll get Michael Kramer in here in a second, but I keep going back to that point that I feel like this narrative around pivot, that the bulls need a pivot, is just, it's just not true based on history. The vast majority of times where the Fed funds rate goes negative is where you have the bulk of a drawdown in a bear market. Now, there are only two other instances in history where that wasn't the case, where the Fed pivoted after the you know big part of the drawdown took place. But whether a, a slowdown is a pivot or not, it's all about perception. The question is why why is Powell walking back on the speed of rates rising when a month before he was ultra hawkish, and now it's like he's changing his tone, and not much has changed. And if anything, the unemployment data still, still seems 
fairly strong. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of question, at least in my mind, as to what's really See, happening around yeah. Fed policy. So most of my career, and we run, like I said, we run an institute. So anybody, anybody that's on Bloomberg, please reach out to us on Bloomberg because we can put you in the chat. But there's been this long assumption that the Fed has the jobs number, you know, two to three days before, right? And that's been out there for decades. So this week, how on earth does Powell like downshift, you know, on the devil's side relative to expectations if he had the jobs number? It makes no right. Sense. No, we something, something doesn't. The, the sniff test isn't there on that. I agree with you on that. And what what the only, only way is, the only reason I can the only thing I can think about is when I was in Washington. I did a speech in Washington about six five weeks five six weeks ago, and we met with. We had some, took some hedge fund clients around the hill, met with some people from Treasury, ex-Treasury people. And the, the amount of phone calls that have been coming into Treasury and the Fed from finance ministers around the world, because when the dollar is that viciously strong, you're exporting inflation, you're, you're creating massive social unrest in the world. So the pressure on the Fed behind the scenes, and this is one thing they'll never, they'll never admit that they were pressured into walking back the dollar. And then you have comments like from, from Elon Musk and you just you just read Barry Sternlich, you know, and all these different smart guys. They don't know what they've done. Milton Friedman said, "When you do seven, when you do four hundred basis points of rate hikes in seven and a half months, like with this much leverage in the system, fifty fifty trillion dollars more than two thousand eighteen of this was, was like three hundred trillion of leverage on the planet, but there's fifty trillion more than the last hiking cycle. So they, I think, what's happening is." They're doing the math behind the scenes, and they're they're looking at some these comments from the, and they're getting phone calls from, from from guys like Musk, and they're getting calls phone calls from guys like guys like Sterling. They're terrified that they've over overcooked the porterhouse, and so and even the IMF, though, right? It's more than just the, the business leaders. I mean, it's it's everywhere, and that, that's what, again that's yeah. the end of the world case. Again, you I've made that point so many times: three hundred trillion dollars of government debt. You can't have your safe collateral that you're leveraging against be more volatile than that which you're leveraging so it had to stop thank you so much for those comments and um, i'm glad to have, have everybody on the call today especially with the with the soccer going on in the world Cup. i told <laughs> but, you uh, there was going to be a melt up in the number of people listening to the space <laughs> but so when i when i put that question in the chat to the institutions it, it's i think this is there's so much short covering because the bearish sentiment was so, so off the charts and this happens in deep bear markets where your year end, you know, the losses are spectacular. You have a lot of funds that are on on death row. You know, if you're, if you're down twenty percent, if you're down fifteen, you know, you, a lot of times you have to close up shop. So when you get that bad, that back bad situation, that the hedges go on, you know, dramatically. Then all of a sudden, on October twenty first, there's this leak to the Wall Street Journal. At the, within the same half an hour of the Bank of Japan intervention on the yen. To me, that is just like, and all of this is just ahead of the midterm elections. It look, It's just so, it smells the high heaven. And once people saw that, they just panicked and covered all at the same time. And yeah, so that's why in bear markets, you have this parabolic move that's typically short-lived. It's not healthy. Typically, in a bear, in a bear market, you, 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 you want to like to have a basing process and where the pain's been washed out, but this is like these parabolic, you know, counter trend rallies that are, like you said, ninety percent short covering threat. And then, then at the same time, you get. We did it. We did a chart this week. I'll share with Michael. But 
it's from 2000 to 2003, these parabolic rises in the, in the industrials are almost identical today. And what happens is you've lost $7 trillion of wealth in the NASDAQ 100, $7 trillion. At least $2 trillion of that has gone into energy and industrials. And so what happens is because it's a slow-moving bear market that's not driven by a systemic event like a Lehman or a COVID, people have to stay invested, right? So then there's by, and then it's by year end. So I hate to say, this, say it this way. We have all these clowns, right, that wouldn't touch energy stocks, wouldn't touch industrials, right? But by year end, they have to, they have to be reallocate their portfolios into these, into these safer areas that are going to do better in an inflation regime. So it's like this massive crowding and running by the quarter end, year end. And to me, that's a pretty nasty setup for January because it's just like everybody's crowding out in these, in these, in these safe havens. Yes, it is the, the, the board is definitely going that into that dovish camp, but it, it's so unusual that this Brainerd speech was leaked also this week. And it, was, it actually came out in last year, and then they, re, they reissued the speech this week, and Brainerd's going to be a, a much more powerful factor. I mean, if people like Brainerd, right, so more dovish. But there, there's a lot of progressives that want to change the like the 2% inflation target. If we're in a higher inflation regime, the, the probability over the next couple of years that the Fed ha, has to raise the inflation target, and part of her speech was like all of these longer-term challenges that the Fed, like the inflation target was really made for another generation, uh, the 2% target. And so it's, there's, just, there's a growing conversation that I'm hearing from institutional clients and the Fed leaking some of these papers. There was another John Turk. John Turk worked with our bear. He started with the bear traps. He's one of the best Fed watchers out there. John Turk. He's on Twitter. Make sure you follow John. But John's make, talked about this R star and square R star number two, and that's where systemic risk is also changing where the Fed stops. And so there's so much leverage. So at the end of the day, you get. There's this new R star that's being leaked out. So the point is you get the feds leaking all these weird things out to the public around a possible inflation target change at some point in the future. And then R star where all R star means is up to the point, the terminal rate is the point where the Fed stops, right? And what we learned with Lehman is that you can say whatever you want to say about the terminal rate and unemployment and the economy, but a lot of times the systemic risk changes that rate. And so that's what they call the, the RSR number two. And that's essentially what just happened a little bit. Now, the Fed won't admit it, but this year, you know, they, the Fed twice started to tone things down, right? And even though they, they made a very aggressive, they had, had a very aggressive hiking cycle, but they clearly, in the face of, you know, crazy inflation, they still kind of walk things back quite a bit with the economy at full employment. And they're probably doing that because of systemic risk. I would add, you know, I know you mentioned January, so I, I put out a, a whole big thread. The first time I ever did a thread like that on Twitter in all my years using Twitter, and I realized after the fact that I can't edit some of them, so I had to correct a couple of things afterwards. And a lot of people will point to the, the break in the dollar as being an argument for risk on in the near term. The problem is the dollar was really the only risk-off play. Gold languished for a while, and treasuries, which usually are your best risk-off trade, as we know, was worse than you can imagine. When I look at gold and I look at gold miners now, Lawrence, the a nice move is starting to happen in that space starting early November. 
and gold does tend to act a little bit like a so I see that I see strength in treasuries. The dollar is not confirming it, but that just may be because it was the only game in town for risk off for a while. I don't know if you saw the threat, but I'm curious if you, you think there's any merit to the idea that maybe people are underestimating just how much of a risk the very, very near term term could be. Because I do think the conditions are there for a surprise akin to what we saw in 2018. Well, you know, if you look at the so the gold silver ratio broke this huge technical level in the last five days. And it's, I've been watching it like a hawk because if, if it broke 80, it was a big deal. And it, and it finally, it's like, it broke 81, really. That, that's the, so it, it typically, that tells you that money's coming back and speculative money's coming back into metals. And it broke it this week. And typically, when you have a hard asset regime change, the, the gold-silver ratio could go to the 30s or to the 50s, you know, way down the 50s. It's still up at roughly just under 80. So to me, that's a real signal that something big – like look at Hecla Mining. That's one of our we – do we do trade alerts for the retail financial advisors. So we, we've been buying – it's one of our largest positions, Hecla Mining, HL. But it's, it's made this largest silver miner in, in, in the United States. And so you've got this big technical level. And I think – the, the, the finally, the Fed is, is softening a touch, but the global economy, because like you, we talked about a little a couple of minutes ago, China reopening, then because of the social pressures there, their ability to, to keep that economy closed is, is, is fairly limited. For, because just they're at the breaking point. So you, you got that, and you got this whole situation with the Bank of Japan. So if the Fed is truly on it's a, it's a Fed's in, in the, coming toward the end of the hiking cycle. At the same time, the planet's improving. That's just your best backdrop for harder assets. And the last 10 years, you wanted to be long financial assets, so growth stocks, and you want to be long bonds. And if we're, if we're really going to go to this new regime where inflation is, you know, hangs out for five years between three and a half and six percent and doesn't get down there, then people don't own enough hard assets. And then if the economy actually weakens, tax revenues fall. And like Michael said, then all of a sudden we have to go back to some type of universal basic income like we did. During, essentially with COVID, we, we brought out universal basic income. There were just millions of families getting federal subsidies. And so if in a recession, we probably are in that pr problem again, where they're gonna have to deposit money in people's bank accounts and, and the tax revenues are lower and then your deficits are higher. And then going to create a massive panic into harder assets. So, yeah, I think that pe people are just starting to move into hard assets as an insurance, some hard assets. Other people have been in hard assets for almost the whole year in energy, but energy is so toppy that now precious metals are starting to steal some market share away from some of the other bubbly parts of the you know commodity cycle. One of the main things around the 2008 financial crisis was the buildup of hidden leverage. Do you think that because you kind of alluded a little bit earlier, right? A decade of low rates and creates these kind of you know insane actors that take on too much excessive risk. Do you think there's a lot? There, there's a, a degree of hidden leverage, and I, um, where I'm going with this is in the cryptocurrency space. It seems to me that it's not impossible that you have a spillover into equities. I've made that point before. A margin call in one asset class is never just isolated to that that one asset class. And a lot of people have been pushing back when I said maybe FTX ends up impacting equities with a lag, similar to how the Lehman bankruptcy impacted equities with a lag in 08. How do you think about hidden leverage risks here in what had been an insane environment for a lot of these cryptocurrency 
projects and scams. Well, yeah, nobody's talking about this. I have a friend, he lost 30 million bucks in FTX. Okay. And you know what? These, there's so many of these wealthy guys that had this, they didn't sell their crypto. Well, they borrowed against it, right? So what people are talking about is how much GDP, well, we know in like 2008, subprime and, and borrowing against your home and all that stuff, that was putting at least, is what I wrote about in my book, 75 basis points of extra economic growth in 2007 came from you know using your home as an ATM and the financing. And so when rates started to go up, all those mortgages resets, and then all that, that wealth destruction housing eventually crushed the consumer. The wild card is, I, yeah, there's something going on because the amount of wealth that was lost, not just the wealth that was lost, the borrowing against the crypto, that was fueling a ton of consumption. And that type of hit is nowhere near been priced into the economy. And so all that incredible wealth, right, that, that was, you could, you could, like, if you had a, if you have $10 million of crypto, you could borrow a million bucks on against it in five seconds and go spend it on a Ferrari, you know, on whatever you wanted to, on a property in the Bahamas. And so that is yet to play out. And it's, and this is what we said, I said earlier, when the dot-coms crashed, we, nominal GDP, over the, it fell 3% because of that wealth destruction. Yeah, and it's markets. You know, I think there's a lot of markets that are, that are related to chaos theory. You know, so so somebody will say to me, "Well, you know, FTX is nowhere near as big as Lehman." Sure, but the whole point of chaos theory is that there are butterfly effects. A butterfly flapping its wings can create a hurricane. But the point is that it's not right away. the The, the thing that really bothers me is that it was like within days after FTX filed that Treasury started looking and acting more risk off, meaning they were dropping in yield as stocks were going down. And I noted that November 16th, it's like something happened that day that spooks treasuries. And it's it's interesting because it's happened, people are attributing the strength in treasuries to the hope of a peak in inflation, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but I think there is something else that's happening in, in the return of the flight to safety dynamic. And it's just curious to me that it's happening with maybe the catalyst being FTX. And then to your point, you, nobody knows the extent to which it impacts so many other parts of the economy because of leverage then impacting other asset classes and sort of the negative feedback loop there. So I don't know. It's just I look at that and I say to myself, it seems to me that you could have a delayed tail event and just as everybody thinks that we're, we're clear into, into year end. And you know what's a great thing on that? Track the correlation between treasuries on the long end, oil and copper. And then if you look back, say the last like 10, go back 20, 20 years, but if you look in periods where they are highly correlated and within the same two, three-week period move violently uh, together, we saw this just before COVID, right? We saw this around Lehman. And it's so th- – because those are, to me, the big three, oil, copper, and, and the long bond. And so what's been weird is you're spot on. Like right around that co- – right around the uh, – the SBF blow-up, all of a sudden, the correlation on these three start right. It's one thing if bonds are rallying, right? But if bonds are rallying and copper, you know, is 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 selling off, and then oil is selling off in the same period, that tells you there's something much bigger going on. Now, the good news is we've had this was happening two weeks ago, and copper's bounced out of that a little bit, and so is oil. But there was a period there. I think it was like within the last two three weeks where there were three or four days where oil rates. And, and copper were all moving at the same, like very violent speed together lower. And 
you want to watch that like a hawk. Because if that if that repeats in the market, that's one of your great risk indicators. Yeah, also, I mean, it's funny because just on that thread, which looks like I got like two million impressions when I when I put that out yesterday. The again, people who think I'm making a call, I'm not making a call. I'm saying the conditions are there. Just because it's sunny doesn't mean you won't crash. Just because it's raining doesn't mean you know that you will crash. But you have got to always identify conditions. The other part of this is this is also what's been kind of nagging at me pretty much all year, aside from the treasury hell. The length of time with which lumber has been weak, the length of time with which utilities have been strong. Historically, especially when it comes to lumber, when you have weakness this unrelenting, it tends to happen prior to major declines, like major capitulatory declines in equities. So again, it's just, there's just, you know, I, I was ultra bullish when everyone was, you know, ultra bearish October 2nd, but it just seems to me like something has changed, which I'd argue is a good thing, by the way, Lawrence, right? It's like, you know, the worst thing in the world is an environment where everything keeps on correlating the same way except for energy. And at some point, energy goes through a nasty decline and everyone then gets screwed because everyone chases at the top to your point, right, about entering December. If you get to some kind of normalization on correlations, that's the first step to a healthier environment, one that at least you can potentially navigate through as opposed to just being in cash, which is a guaranteed loss after inflation. Thank you, everybody, for joining. I'll have this as a podcast soon enough, and everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Lawrence. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.